Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question, and unpack the rest. Today, we're asking, how has the job of a venture capitalist changed? And I'm bringing on the notoriously one person who will not be going TC to VC, Alex Wilhelm. How are you, Alex? (laughs) Well, I was doing some research to ensure that I never have to become an investor. And did you know that the state of New Jersey is ranked 49th out of 50 when it comes to fiscal stability, according to U.S. News & World Report? This is the sort of research that equity brings to the audience. (laughs) There we go. Hard stuff. Well, the reason Alex is feeling so confident about slamming on my home state is because we have another New Englander on the show this week. Malia Russell from Business Insider. Hello, Malia. Hi. Yes, I am calling in from New Hampshire. We have a small venture scene, believe it or not, but we're most infamous, I think, for alumni VC, which made not good news recently. <laughs> um, but one of the one of the most active early stage investors in America, if, if you read TechCrunch, you'd know that. Oh, flex on them. That's smart. Alex, tell everyone who Malia is and give everyone the background. I feel like you guys have known each other longer than... I feel like we all know each other from Twitter, but well, <laughs> there's a real relationship here. People. Also, there's just there's just not that many people that cover startups and venture capital. So you end up hanging out with the same like 15 people throughout your life and career. So I've had the good fortune of knowing Malia for a while. I also know her partner, Kyle Russell, formerly a tech venture, now at Playbite. I Correct, Amanda. Nailed it. He left us originally for Andreessen and then Drone Company, and he's bounced around a bit. But Malia is the star today. She is a senior, uh, <laughs> a not reporter. <laughs> Let's flat be clear. out true, day or night, just shining above. <laughs> senior correspondent, business insider, the person over there I read the most. I want to say mm-hmm. you and uh, of course the Equity alumni Matthew Lindley is also an insider, um, and I would say one of the smartest and critically nicest people on our beat. And so, if you want someone who knows a lot of stuff and will be in a reasonably good mood. Malia. Thank you so much. I think that is my motto in life, reasonably in a good mood. (laughs) Uh, I know. (laughs) I've been with BI, it'll be 10 years in the spring. And wow. And I started covering startups when I moved to San Francisco six, seven years ago, uh, just because it, you know, was in my backyard. And in the pandemic, I moved to New England. Shout out Alex, fellow New Englander. And now my husband, Kyle's a startup founder. I am a startup reporter. And we're just like running our own little Silicon Woods scene <laughs> out here. Oh, I'm so here I've for been it. trying to make that make that catch, but uh, it's it's not. <laughs> S- Silicon Woods? I actually kind of like that. We should I think we need to. <laughs> Granite Valley is another one I floated because we're the Granite State. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> We'll get all. Of, I was gonna say we can get them all of them in the title, but maybe like the subhead at least we'll get one of them in okay. there. <laughs> Live dispatch for sure. <laughs> no, but I mean I feel like you're reporting on startups like Clubhouse, Spring Health, Modern Health has been super important for the ecosystem. But we're taking kind of a broader look today at your reporting on venture capital trends. You recently had a piece out with Madeline Renberger about how maternity leave has played out on kind of a policy front. And we're going to get to that. But I I wanted today to start with this broader look at just all the effort that has been put in to broaden, diversify and democratize the job of a VC. And honestly, just to get into a little bit of what's changed, because I think a lot of people have been writing about it recently at TC, at BI, and to start at the information with Kate Clark's new column. Alex, you wrote about how the downturn is hitting new investors, which feels like such an equity sweet spot. Well, absolutely. Also, I'll just 
point out that Kate Clark used to be a host on this very show. So it's always good to have her reporting come up. She's also one of the best out there. We've actually had a, a pretty impressive group of folks run through the equity team over time. Very proud of that. Hell yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the information, great publication. If you don't read them, you really should. And Kate wrote about how there is some concern amongst more junior venture capitalists out there that suddenly the upwardly mobile career path they were on might in fact be a enormous ceiling above them made of concrete. Because if everyone is raising bigger funds and writing more checks, they need more staff and there's more work to do. Suddenly, if they're writing fewer checks and perhaps dispersing capital at an overall lower pace, well, there's less grunt work to do and you might get gently nudged out the nest. You won't be fired because there's a lot of like signaling risk there, but you might be suddenly told that Harvard's applications for business school are due in two weeks. She had she had a really spicy section in there about how new investors, because the market has changed, are spending a lot of their time writing up market maps and, and how that's not going to get them a promotion. And I was so curious what you guys think on that, because I actually thought that that was part of a job of a VC is to signal. And if you are well known, I'm sure a, you know the GP is like, let's keep that one. They're smart. I think the hard part is that they're working on market maps. They're diligencing deals. But if, if you have fewer startups going to market right now to raise and fewer of those deals that they're researching result in term sheets, I think the idea is that those junior investors are going to have fewer data points in those early years of their career to show that they pick winners. I think that's the most important thing because it's great to be active on social. It probably can help with your career path in venture capital, in journalism, in a lot of places, if you have a bit of a presence to you. But what matters most in venture is a bit like what matters most in journalism. It's a discrete thing. In venture, it's finding companies early and guiding the firm to invest in them or lead that investment yourself. Just like in journalism, mostly what you want is, is scoops. If you don't have a Twitter account, but you scoop a lot, you'll do fine. In venture, if all you do is find unicorns when they're worth a dollar, you'll be fine whether you post or not. Yeah, that's so real. I think it's something that even existed, I think, before the market changed. One of my friends actually left venture because she had spent, the firm only did one deal a month. She had spent months diligencing. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Executing Is diligence. Is that really the word? Yeah. <laughs> she spent months looking into a startup and pitching it and like really pushing for it. The deal fell through and suddenly four months of her past year was kind of useless and didn't have anything to prove for it. And so it gave me a lot of empathy for even in like a very fast-paced market, if you are a newer investor and you don't have any proof that you've made a difference or had an impact in term sheet-wise, like you said, Malia, um, What do you call a collection of junior VCs? Uh-oh. The Dillingentsia. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> Sorry, I'm working on my dad jokes. Get, get limbered up. Oh, so soon. I had to hold on to that so for like 17 seconds. I was bursting, but I was like, let Natasha okay. finish her paragraph, then make your terrible joke, then derail the conversation, then bring it back onto the rails. Malia. Well, actually, Malia, <laughs> speaking of jokes, your Halloween costume for one second, can we talk about it? Please. It, you also, people contact, she always dresses up as something about tech yes. for Halloween. I, done, so I did this year. for like a few years pre-pandemic and then put it on pause when I had a baby and I was more concerned with her Halloween costume. But yes, Fair. this year I dressed up as founder scissor hands and I was cutting down burn and <laughs> which some people informed me was like a little grim but I was like you know in the spirit of Halloween I can yeah. I can get away with it but yeah I had I had like the black turtleneck and I swapped a white button down with a white hoodie and I had all these costs written on my sweatshirt things like AWS uh SaaS subscriptions <laughs> recruiters influencer spend. 
Oh. And yeah, but my favorite to date was still my 2018 costume, which was Scooter Wars. And I was dressed up in like military garb and I had like Scooter app logos pinned all oh, over me. Oh my God. But uh but yeah. Yeah, I would feel like the cutting the burn and the the specter of doom is a much more fitting theme now for the scooters because there's no scooter wars. There's just like scooter corpses. <laughs> yeah. Like sputter sputtering scooters. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, the, so good. The cutting room floor <laughs> costume for this year was deflating valuations and I was just going to like pin deflated balloons to me, but I decided I was going to do something oh I'll, I'll, you step it up a little more. I want like the scoop on your Halloween costume next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we have to have Malia back in one year's time to talk about what she's going to wear so we can get the uh, the scoop on that. Yes. I am the Heidi Klum of startup Halloween. <laughs> Heidi Klum, if you don't know this, dressed up as an enormous earthworm. And it was pretty much the best Halloween costume I've ever seen. Malia, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Dragging this back. I am amazed that I knew that pop culture reference. Like 10 points I know, to me. I didn't. Yeah. What's happening? Yeah, what's going on? Heidi Klum, she was on that, that fashion show with uh, the Make It Work guy. Project Runway. Tim Gunn. There you go. Yeah, Tim Gunn. <laughs> Dragging Anyways. us by the scruff of the neck back to what we were talking about. <laughs> the thing that the Kate Clark column got me thinking about wasn't just that some junior VCs, associates, analysts, and so forth are going to see less upward mobility in their careers than they might have thought and therefore might take some traditional banking-ish detours to business school and so forth. I'm concerned about all the funds that hired their first couple of diverse folks and didn't have any turnover at the top and therefore ended up with some people kind of frozen in the lower ranks that now may be leaving venture and that some of the efforts to hire more folks that don't look just like myself will now flounder. In this odd era of old GPs not quite leaving, but new VCs not really having a shot, it's a strange moment. Yeah, the turnover has been interesting to track. I think most recently we saw Terry Burns, who was the youngest partner at GV, the first black partner, leave the firm. And we don't know what she's doing next. It is one cherry-picked example. But I think you're spot on, Alex, in saying that like there is kind of this stress test. And it either means that the talent is going to stay or leave, which, Malia, you wrote about this in February 2022. Uh, so, And I'm thinking, like, has anything changed? Everyone's still changing jobs. <laughs> so I think this is pretty funny. Very early this year, when the headlines were all about the great resignation, I wrote a kind of predictions post about how this year, you know, the great resignation in VC was underway, and it was going to lead emerging investors to leave their established firms and go raise outside funds, first-time funds. And I felt so confident in that prediction after a year like 2021, when money was so free-flowing. And I turned out to be dead wrong. This year was absolutely horrific, I think, for first-time fund managers. What we're seeing from like Q3 data from sources like Crunchbase and PitchBook is that you have VC firms still raising mountains of capital, but that money is being concentrated in fewer and fewer funds. You have the established managers raising the lion's share. And yeah. coming back to your point on improving representation in venture, those people who are going to have enough of a reputation, enough of a track record to raise a first-time fund are more likely to be like entrenched in the venture ecosystem and, and probably look more like your traditional white male VC. I think about the Katie Hahn raising $1 billion for her debut crypto fund moment. And there was this huge conversation after about the halo effect that would have on other emerging fund managers. But Katie Hahn is such an exception. 
she is like an iconic and like you said, like this deeply entrenched person in the, she sits on Coinbase's board, if I'm correct. And so it is always like funny that now the nuance feels a little bit more obvious and it's no longer a joke like, oh, probably gonna start a fund, aren't you? I mean, I remember like, Alex, when we had Alexis Gay on, we were like, so when's your rolling fund launching? And I feel like we're just in such a vastly different ecosystem where it's not a no brainer anymore. Well, I think, I think the fact that we only talk about rolling funds in the context of we don't talk about rolling funds anymore goes to show just kind of how that experiment worked out when all of a sudden everyone was less wealthy. Essentially, if you want to think about it, LPs have a lot of capital also in the stock market because most of the stocks are owned by wealthy people and foundations and so forth. And so suddenly, if the capital pool for LPs goes down, i.e. the money that rolling funds might raise, well, then there's probably fewer of those. But going back to the Katie Hahn thing, it hit me, Natasha, when you were saying that, that she did break out and do her own fund and raised a billion. And then also Amy Wu over at FTX raised a big fund for crypto. So we actually have seen a number of solo GP-ish women in the Web3 space end up with pretty large capital pools. I didn't actually think of those as, as a pair in any way, but at least there's some data that the change that we were all hoping to see in venture did happen, at least in, in microcosm in certain areas. Well, a uh, counterpoint I might make to that is Please. the other emerging fund manager who had a big year, I think, was Rex Salisbury, who's an early fintech hire at A16Z. And he left early this year to raise a fund under the banner Cambrian Ventures. And so my my counterpoint is that Katie Hahn is also coming from A16Z. Oh my that, God. That, yeah. that badge of honor gets you really far as, as we've seen with, you know, Rex kind of breaking through the $20 million debut fund this summer. That is so true. I didn't think about that connection. Also, they're hiring a crypto intern right now. I check their job postings every few weeks and it seems like they're still doing some hiring. So if someone wants a badge of honor, maybe that. <laughs> Wait, Andreessen is still hiring or, or Cambrian Ventures? Oh, Andreessen. Sorry. Oh, I was like, you check Cambrian Ventures job postings? Yeah, you're <laughs> no. way better at this than I am because I should be doing that and I definitely do not. <laughs> I, I did go for a walk with Rex recently and he's fascinating. I think your headline put it really well. He's like the super connector in yeah. VC. Rex's background is that he operates an online and in-person community of builders in fintech. And so that group feeds him a lot of deal flow, which is very exciting to his LPs. And we, we talked about how part of his success in raising a debut fund came from LPs trusting, okay, he's from Andreessen. He has the pipeline and a track record of deals. He said that you know, with 500 people on Andreessen's staff, that soon enough it might not be all that exciting for someone. 500 to, people. 500 people on Andreessen's staff. staff. That no longer will it be like so sexy for someone to leave Andreessen and raise a fund because <laughs> there will be so many of them. I mean, it, it's a lot like when Googlers were called Zooglers because they were relatively rare because they were ex. Googlers. And people are always like, you know, a former Google executive is founding a company. And I'm like, who cares? <laughs> they have a job. Congratulations. If Andreessen has 500 people, mm, that loses a lot of its pedigree. Uh, Natasha, though, there was other stuff to talk about, including the idea that venture capitalists are quite quitting. And Roy Bahat from Bloomberg Beta wrote kind of the seminal thread on this, got us all thinking about it. And this is the context that the Kate Clark column really sits for me in because if the junior VCs are being forced out, it means people are staying. However, they're also kind of sitting on past success, it sounds like. Yeah, it, it all kind of merges in this central idea that layoffs at VC firms are very uncommon. And even if they do happen, they're hard to track. It's really easy to kind of work at a VC firm because let's say you are a like a big face 
of the firm. You could just be that and the general public wouldn't really know that, if that makes sense. What I'm trying to say is it's easy to be kind of connected financially, but when it comes to day-to-day work, it's kind of hard to guess how much, you know, all these partners, all the 500 people at Andreessen are doing on a day-to-day basis on that single deal. And so that's what I wrote about for my column, which is like, we are seeing VCs, some of them who have made their successes, stay at the firms that they helped build reputation of because it makes LPs happy, it attracts interest, it helps them win deals. But day-to-day, they don't need to be working, you know, their booty off during this market. I don't know, I've never said that phrase before, but they, they don't need to I'm be. now imagining old male venture capitalist booty. And few things have been less exciting to me than this moment in my life. It's weird. I don't know. I don't mean to body shame. Just, you know, not my thing. I feel like the, the moment I'm like, how do I, how do I take that? And how do I bring this back? Long story short, I just feel like the whole idea that like VC has these two extremes of either it's like the young people really fighting to get a deal done and the older, more experienced and tenured people that don't have to get a deal done right now and can kind of wait it out makes it a really difficult place for founders right now. And I'm curious, Malia, if you've heard something similar or even agree with that perspective. Well, I think I'm interested to see who retires in the next 12 months from venture because you know, you're talking about kind of OG investors resting on their laurels. It'll be at least a year, I think, before we see the market bounce back and even longer for us to return to 2021 highs. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see more partners take up the title partner emeritus at large established firms. Just last week, Mark Kwame, founder of Drive Capital out in Columbus, Ohio, transitioned to that role, leaving his right-hand man, Chris Olson, in charge. I think we'll see more people kind of hang up their sneaks. And, you know, if they're not hanging up their sneakers, maybe they combine with other VC firms. I'm like always still waiting for like some acquisitions or mergers to happen there. I I don't know if we've seen too many of like VC firms eating each other up. The only one I could recall was... Lee Jin and Jesse Walden merging Atelier and Variant. And that was like in the Web3 bull run, right? So Yeah, that was a random time. What's the combined thing called? I couldn't tell you. So I remember Atelier, we we had Lee Jin on the show. Still Variant. Variant. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think people do that. You don't combine venture firms because they're discrete. Like each fund at a VC firm has its own lifespan, center of gravity, financial commitments and contracts, right? So you can't, it's not like two SaaS companies where you can kind of merge them yeah. together and just add the revenue up. It's, it's financially complicated, but it is something that Nico Bonazzos predicted at Disrupt last week. Nico. Last week? Was it last week already? Two weeks, two weeks ago. ago. He said like how we might see hundreds of new VC firms kind of merging together. Some will definitely leave, some will retire, but I think there might be more savvy or unique ways we'll see things change, which I, you know, it goes to something we'll talk about later, which is like, what's actually going to stick of this current moment? I would suspect that if we see VC firms merging, it would be with the solo capitalist group, right? Like just congregating their deal flow and reputation and capital. But to Alex's point, I feel like as a VC, you are your brand, you are your reputation. And to merge sounds like an admission of failure. And I, I don't know that we'll see too many VCs do that. Yeah. I mean, we also just don't see that many VC firms die. Like one that comes to mind is like August Capital. And I know about August because we used to have the TechCrunch summer party there because they had this really sick back deck. And now we don't have them host the TC summer party anymore. I think it's Mayfield because August slowly dissolved. And I think to kill off a VC firm that has, you know, a, a decent set of historical results requires a particular succession crisis, which is kind of what we're dancing around here. 
you know, we're dancing around the concept of like, when will some of these old hands go away and what will be left of the more diverse pipeline that was built in the last couple of years? But Malia, as it turns out from your recent reporting, there are some structural issues still at firms when it comes to just providing what we might consider basic care for staff that are not met. Yeah. So I reported a story that published yesterday on women in venture writing their firm's maternity leave policies. This was a couple months of reporting went into this with my co-writer, Madeline Renbarker. We spoke to a dozen women at different levels in the VC industry. And our reporting showed that many of these women were joining firms. And as they began family planning, learned that their firms didn't have a maternity leave or family leave policy in place. It was apparent to them that if they wanted to take mat leave, they needed to research what an appropriate policy is and propose it and implement it. It's kind of mind-blowing that the onus would be on them. There were a few factors, I think, or reasons for that. You know, one being that the venture industry has been so overwhelmingly male-dominated for so long that there weren't many women who needed these policies. And two, so many VC firms are tiny, um, well under 100 people, and they might not have back offices like HR who focus on employee benefits. Okay, here's the crazy thing about this, because Malia, you've had a kid for a couple of years. I'm just getting into this, and I'm literally, (laughs) I was emailing with the insurance provider that does like my parental leave. I don't like the phrase mat leave. I don't like the phrase pat leave. I prefer parental leave because it degenderifies it and makes it about being a parent. But if you don't have a maternity leave policy, you probably don't have a parental leave policy at all. And that means that these venture funds were run by men so out of touch with the common needs of working people who were not men that they hadn't even learned from their spouses that they might want to have this sort of policy. Does that mean that none of their spouses f-ing work? Like I, I, I'm in awe of the scale of being out of touch required to get to this point and then go, oh, shit, we should probably do something. What is it, 1934? It feels like an oversight. I mean, I can't say I'm surprised. And I don't know if this makes you feel any better, but what was interesting to me was that so many women we spoke to said that when they took accountability for creating their firm's policies, they wanted to like get what they deserve. Like they, you know, shot for the moon in terms of like what they were asking for, I think, and thought about how, you know, this policy doesn't affect just me, but all the women and birthing people who joined the firm after me. And and so I, I think that they took a lot of care to make policies that, I don't know, are what they want. One really smart thing that you guys did with the story, I think, is including that most of the people you spoke to said that they worked during leave, not because their firms expected it, but because their success often depended on it. And that's pretty much a direct quote from the story. To me, I agree, yes, absurd that policies weren't in place. But that line to me really summed up that the job of a venture capital for so long has been associated with always being online, being available on speed dial, and... It's working around the clock in any way and definition possible. And so to me, it felt more, yes, for a firm to do better, but it felt more like a structural definition change of what a successful venture capitalist looks like and how that can be for a few months out of the year, not what we've thought of. It's always about value add. And I feel like it was really important to see that in writing. This is why men need to take parental leave, because if you don't and women do, you're essentially enforcing a norm that women are less available and less reliable. So what we should do is is we should have men take parental leave, all of it, 
And then they should not work during that time. So that way, if women want to, or people who have children can hang out with their kids and get to know them. Like the, yeah. it's, if you're a man and you're listening to this and you're going to have children at any point, take all of your leave. Don't be a dick. I also think it's like, it's about leave, but I also think it's about like founders and their expectations. Like why does that look like success and a useful investor to you? You should probably be rechecking your assumptions on why you think someone should be available at 9.30 PM on a Monday night to you. Mm. And if that's useful, but Malia, I'm curious when you were talking to investors, that feels like a really difficult thing. It's like, there's no one to blame here. It feels like, right? That rings really true to me that it was really hard. I I feel like I went into this assignment thinking, where do I point the finger of blame? Naturally. How can, I, how can I hold firms accountable for shorting women? But I think what I found is that the reality of having this job is that it's a kind of 24-hour position. And women are finding that if they go dark for any extended period of time, whether it's a vacation, a honeymoon, or a parental leave, they are essentially closing themselves off to deal flow. They're unavailable to their founders. You know, I spoke to some investors who said, right now, my founders need me more than ever. You know, their runway is nearing an end and I need to be there to counsel them. The VC's only currency (laughs) is their reputation and how helpful they are to founders. So coming back to your point, Natasha, I super agree. I think that this is like a kind of structural problem or it feels to me really difficult to change the nature of being a VC. A firm can roll out an extremely generous, you know, policy 26 weeks off, but it doesn't really make a difference for whether or not that investor feels like she can take time away. Totally. The example you included with Annie Kadavi was perfect because she joined Redpoint and I think within a few weeks she went on maternity leave. And I think that makes a statement, right? Because it shows that there's not this like, you don't need to be at a certain level to take maternity leave. And I think all those things matter when you're newer or at any level. But I guess like to maybe put a fine point on the ending of this conversation, I'm curious what you both think on as jobs get harder and pressure rises, like we talked about in our previous two sections, do we think these policies will be more or less of a priority? They're not the band-aid that fixes everything, but priority-wise, I think they say something. So how confident are we that things may change? Oh gosh, I think things are going to change. If they change for the better, that's what I'm not sure about. But we did talk earlier on about a number of women who are controlling 10-figure funds. And I think that that's not the way the world looked when I started to cover venture capital. So I I want to be cognizant of progress while also being impatient with more. I think that if we are seeing older partner quiet quitting, that should lead to actual quitting at some point. And then hopefully there are still enough women and more diverse folks in the ranks of these venture firms to move up. We'll be able to tell. You know, we'll run the data. We'll see what happens. But I just want to say that venture capitalists love to bore me politely because I know this is part of their, their shtick. By telling me again and again and again that venture is a long-term game, that it's just the Series A market today. When this company goes public in eight years, things will be different. Who knows? Cool. It's perfectly fine to take a long-term perspective if that's the way you should approach things. But if it is the case, then letting your staff take eight weeks off after they have a child uh, should be just fine for everyone if you're so long-term focused. I feel like some of the changes we're seeing in the venture job ecosystem right now are kind of a blip. You know, we're seeing that established managers are gobbling up a bigger share of the available capital. They hold the purse strings, they hold the power, they hold the attention of founders looking for for money. And honestly, I think next year is just going to remain really stagnant. I think we'll see fewer startups go to market looking to raise capital. 
I think we'll see venture firms hire less aggressively than they did during the tech bull run. I guess the TLDR is more of the same in 2023. I'm not super looking forward to it. My like small optimistic bent, I'll say, is in your story, you mentioned Dina Shacker from Lux mentioned how like the playbooks were never existing and now they're being written. And I'm a big believer in like muscle memory meeting something in that first playbook, even though it like feels absurd that there is something as big as maternity leave playbooks being written in 2022. It's a difference. And so I'm hoping that it creates like more confidence and a little bit more patience on all ends. I alluded to the fact that I'm like, I think the innate expectations of a venture capitalist kind of support and emphasize that you need to be a white male investor with no family or no family responsibilities. And so my hope is that we see more of that broadening. I think we are seeing it with Gen Z's, VC, with more diverse fund managers. It's just kind of patience. Patience on yeah. everyone <laughs> to see that. I, you know, I'm reminded that you can't be what you can't see. So as we have more women joining the ranks of partners and stepping up their firm's policies to make them more inclusive of parents, I do expect that it will encourage more underrepresented investors to get in this space. I love I love ending on a positive note. Sometimes equity can get a little bit honest or negative or critical. And so it's lovely to hear some optimism, Malia. All the things. Malia, you were fantastic. Tell everyone where they can read and follow you on the internet. Well, if Twitter still exists by the time <laughs> that this comes out, you can find me on Twitter at Malia Robin and my DMs are open. Perfect. And Alex, you're at Alex. I'm at nmask underscore. I don't want to talk about it. It's the worst. And and the pod is at Equity Pod. So follow all of us. It is amazing. And thank you all for being here. <laughs> we will chat with you on Friday. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas, editor-in-chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch senior reporter, Marianne Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>